Chapter Eight of Feminism in Greek Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas. Feminism in Greek Literature by Frederick Adam Wright. Chapter Eight: Euripides, the Four Feminist Plays. The three main interests of Euripides' mind realist, pacifist, and feminist, to use our ugly jargon, are to be found in all his theatre. But there are four plays which are especially concerned with the relations between women and men, the Alcestis, Medea, Ion, and Andromache. They are not pleasant plays. Indeed, to a lover of sentimental idealism, they would be conspicuously unpleasant if they were fully understood. Nor are they to be recommended to women readers the relations between the sexes are a delicate thing and human nature male humanity at any rate is generally none the worse for discreet reticence and tender handling but in these plays euripides uses the surgeon's knife they were meant for an audience of men grown callous by time and custom and the treatment is ruthless they should be regarded as the painful but necessary operation needed to rid a patient of some long festering ulcer and the dramatist deserves the thanks that we give to the skilful surgeon the particular flaws in the male character with which euripides deals in the four plays are these meanness cowardice selfishness and treachery these are not the faults it will be noticed that are especially appropriate to a ruling class man is not indicted on the score of haughtiness pride or cruelty his weaknesses are of a less manly sort it is his position as the natural lord of creation that is questioned and put to the test of dramatic action if jason admetus apollo and menelaus are impossible characters then euripides fails altogether in his lesson if their actions though possible are improbable then again he fails in an artistic sense some may think that no one could be quite so mean as jason quite so cowardly and selfish as apollo and admetus quite so treacherous as menelaus but if we apply the test of experience the cruel facts of life will justify the poet none of the four are tragedies in the sense in which we use the word they are as good examples as we are ever likely to see of la haute comedie the ion and the andromache perhaps a little melodramatic the alcestis and the medea in places almost farcical but all depending eventually on a subtle study of psychology and social relationships it is probable that they were not originally composed for public representation in the great theatre of dionysus they are intimate studies of humanity and can quite easily be divested of the official chorus prologue and epilogue which are independent of the dramatic action of the play what is left is euripides own teaching put as plainly as the ironical spirit will allow the frequency of translation must not blind us to the fact that in essentials euripides is untranslatable he is one of the greatest masters of irony and there is nothing that is so apt to vanish in translation or create confusion in the english mind all four plays are concerned with problems of motherhood and children especially male children in three child actors are required and play an important part in the action the fourth play the Eon, has for its hero a lad just emerging from the awkward age of boyhood between the Eon and the andromache there is a curious resemblance of plot the case was probably not uncommon in the circumstances of race degeneration that prevailed at athens during the fifth century in both plays a husband has a childless wife but a son by an irregular union there are two women to one man and in each case there is another man in the background 
Apollo, who has seduced Creusa, and Orestes, who has been the affianced lover to Hermione. The husbands, Zuthus and Pyrrhus, are the least important figures in the action. Indeed, Pyrrhus does not appear in person at all. They are represented as colourless characters, men of position and personal courage, dangerous perhaps when roused, but generally negligible. Their young wives, Hermione and Creusa, regard them with a mixture of contemptuous fear and jealous affection. The interest is concentrated on the women, and the plays are studies of wifely jealousy. Why should my husband have a child while I am childless? And maternal love. Euripides knows well that motherhood is a woman's natural sphere. A childless woman is for him an abnormal woman, and behaves in an abnormal and antisocial fashion. Both wives attribute their barrenness, probably the natural result of their past history, to supernatural causes. Hermione believes that the foreign concubine Andromache has bewitched her, Creusa that she has incurred the anger of a god. Hermione accordingly proposes to break the spell by killing the witch. Creusa goes to Delphi to propitiate the divinity and seek his aid. Both women also, in their jealous hate, are anxious to kill their husband's bastard. Hermione uses her father's help and nearly succeeds in murdering the boy Molossus. Creusa employs her father's old slave as her agent and all but poisons the boy Eon. In neither case is the crime accomplished, for the plays are not tragedies, but the criminal purpose is there. The women have been injured in the past and they are childless. They are embittered against life and ready to requite evil for evil. On the other hand, the unwedded mothers in both plays are ready to sacrifice themselves for their children. Andromache offers her life to save her son. "'What pleasure have I in life?' she cries. "'In him all my hopes centre. It would be a disgrace for me not to die on behalf of the child I bore. Children indeed are life. Those who in ignorance disparage them may feel less pain than we do, but they are miserable in their happiness.' in the aeon pythia consents to an even harder sacrifice she hands over her child to another woman saves him thereby from the guilt of murder and makes him prince of athens andromache and the priestess have been injured in the past but they are saved by their children the maternal not the marital is the holy state but in both plays the feminist interest is complicated by other motives political and religious in the andromache a bitter attack is made upon the spartan system in the person of menelaus you a man old peleus cries you dastard son of dastard parents what claim have you to be counted among men a fine man it was a phrygian that robbed you of your wife you left your hearth and home without a lock without a servant to guard as though forsooth you had a virtuous wife within doors she who was the worst of all women why even if she wished none of your spartan girls could be virtuous they leave the shelter of home and go about with young men their legs bare their dresses open and run and wrestle like men it all seems to be abominable we need not be surprised that your system of education does not produce virtuous women in the aeon the system of delphi and the oracle is assailed and a vein of bitter irony runs through the play so ironical is the poet's method that if we take the prologue seriously and confine ourselves to the statements there made we are apt to get a somewhat misleading idea of the play's purpose dr way for example who gives the traditional interpretation with the greatest clearness supplies the following summary of the action in the days when erechtheus ruled over athens apollo wrought violence to the king's young daughter creusa and she having borne a son left him by reason of her fear and shame in the cave wherein the god had humbled her 
but apollo cared for him and caused the babe to be brought to delphi even to his temple therein was the child nurtured and ministered in the courts of the god's house and in the process of time erechtheus died and left no son nor daughter save creusa and evil days came upon athens that she was hard bestead in war then zuthus a chief of the achaean folk fought for her and prevailed against her eubean enemies and for guerdon of victory received the princess creusa to wife and so became king consort in athens but to these twain was no child born so after many years they journeyed to delphi to inquire of the oracle of apollo touching issue and there the god ordered all things so that the lost was found and an heir was given to the royal house of athens yet through the blind haste of mortals and their little faith was the son well nigh slain by the mother and the mother by the son this summary quite faithfully represents the statements of the divine hermes but euripides knows as well as we do that gods do not walk the earth and that children are not miraculously wafted through the air the prologue satisfies convention the play itself is realistic and one of the chief characters is a woman of whom the prologue tells us nothing the real plot as opposed to the idealistic version is as follows the facts are put down crudely instead of being conveyed by subtle hints and innuendo as they are in the greek a young athenian girl creusa wandering one day alone in the fields is attacked by a brutal satyr he drags her into a cave violates her and then makes his escape she faints and on awakening imagines that her assailant who has disappeared as suddenly as he came was a being from another world she had seen him in the full sunlight he is the sun-god apollo she tells no one of her adventure conceals her condition and when the time comes makes her way alone to the same cave the child is born wrapped by the girl-mother in a piece of cloth and placed together with a golden bracelet as token in a wicker basket then he is abandoned and of his fate we hear no more about the same time at delphi in one of those periods of promiscuous sexual intercourse allowed and encouraged by temple ritual one of the delphian women becomes a mother by a roving soldier of fortune named zuthus the latter leaves delphi ignorant of his paternity and the woman is soon after appointed priestess of the temple her child eon ostensibly a foundling is reared within the temple precinct and regards the priestess as his foster-mother meanwhile the soldier zuthus makes his way to athens and marries creusa they have no children and come to delphi to ask advice of the oracle the priestess recognizes zuthus as the father of her son and so arranges matters remaining herself unseen that after a conversation with the boy he acknowledges him as his child the result of the former hasty connection but though zuthus has now got a son creusa is still a childless wife in passionate anger she reveals her long-hidden secret denounces the god as the author of her ruin and with the help of a slave attempts to poison eon the plot fails she is pursued as a murderess by eon and is on the point of being put to death then the priestess once more intervenes she has heard creusa's story in some details not unlike though more lamentable than her own and she determines to help a fellow-sufferer she has already given up her son to his father and she now arranges a second trick whereby creusa shall believe eon to be her child she has in her possession a baby's wicker cradle a piece of cloth similar to that in which the dead baby was wrapped and creusa's own bracelet which has been used in the poisoning plot by an ingenious subterfuge she makes all three appear to be the recognition tokens of creusa's child creusa with joy eon with some painful doubts accept the new relationship and so the play ends 
the Eon and the andromache both abound in incident the medea and the alcestis depend more on a psychological interest they are one-part plays the strong woman medea and the weak man admetus and they have many points of resemblance in the medea a mother kills her children to save her own pride in the alcestis a mother consents to death to save her children's position alcestis is a saint medea to some people a devil medea is certainly not meant to be a pleasant character she has laboured too long under a sense of injustice to be pleasant either in her thoughts or behaviour you are always abusing the government jason says to her and so you will have to be ejected she expresses the revolt of women in its bitterest form of all things that draw breath she cries and have understanding we women are the most miserable we are merely a thing that exists to begin with we must outbid each other to buy ourselves a lord and take a master of our body tis a risky business we may get a knave or an honest man to leave her husband brings a woman no honour and we may not refuse our lords when a woman comes to fresh ways and pastures new she needs must be a prophet for she has never been taught at home how best to use the man who now shares her bed if we work our task aright and our lord keeps house with us and does not kick against the yoke then our life is enviable if not better to be dead a man if he is vexed with the company of his household goes out and purges away his heart's annoyance but we women are compelled to look ever at one soul this isolation was the worst feature in a greek woman's life to a clever woman it was soul-destroying and medea is incomparably cleverer than any man in the play the scenes where she forces the two old men king creon and king aegeus to do not what they want but what she wants are masterpieces of satirical humour with her husband her cleverness fails her she is too angry to reason she hisses her scorn and foams her disgust jason keeps cool and so far has the best of the argument you certainly are a clever woman he says but you are only a woman i am a very fine figure of a man you fell in love with me and it was only natural jason is in many ways like admetus both are lovers of outward show and have some regard for men's opinion both say with some emphasis that a family of two children is quite large enough both have the same opinion of women and this is how jason concludes men ought to be able to get their children from some other source the female sex should not exist and then there would be no trouble for mankind such sentiments naturally fail to please either the chorus or medea the comment of the chorus is you have made the best of your case but still surprising though it may seem to you i think you are acting unfairly in betraying the woman who has shared your bed medea gives full vent to her anger she contemptuously refuses the help in money which jason says he is ready to give with an ungrudging hand and at last scornfully dismisses him be off with you you are yearning for the new girl you have broken in all the time that you linger outside her house go and play the bridegroom with her but in the next scene medea has mastered her temper and pretends to submit we are but what we are she says just women you must not take pattern by the evil nor answer folly with foolishness i give way i acknowledge that i was wrong jason is patronizing and friendly in his answer i approve your present attitude and indeed i do not blame your past behavior it is only to be expected woman is a thing of moods he consents to ask his new wife for a remission of the children's exile certainly i will and i fancy that i shall persuade her yes indeed you will medea says 
if she is one of us all women are alike but i will help you once again in this enterprise too and as in the past she had given him an antidote against the fire-breathing bulls so now she gives him the fiery robe which is to destroy the young bride then comes the crucial scene of the play medea kills her children and we are faced by the problem when is killing murder a mother who kills her child is to us a dreadful figure and the death penalty is invoked against the deserted girl mother no punishment is inflicted upon the father perhaps because no punishment can be adequate greek law and custom went further and in a different direction the father was allowed to decide whether the child whom his wife had brought forth should be reared child killing in this fashion when done by the father was not a crime and the exposure of children after birth was a common and by no means held to be a reprehensible act plato indeed thinks it a fit subject for a jest in the theatetus do you think says socrates that it is right in all cases to rear your own child will you be very angry if we take it the argument from you as we might take a baby from a young mother with her first child oh no answered the other theatetus will not mind he is not at all hard to get on with the mother who did mind was regarded as a difficult person but whether she minded or not decision lay with the father as we see in terence's play the self-tormentor there the wife says to her husband you remember don't you when i was pregnant you told me emphatically that if the child should be a girl you would refuse to rear it the child proved to be a girl and so without further question it was got rid of male children were more valuable and unless the circumstances of their birth were exceptional as in the case of paris and oedipus they were not often exposed there is this further point what differentiates killing from murder is the question of risk you kill you do not murder when you risk your own life a soldier is not a murderer and in sport a fox-hunter is a man of different type from a pigeon-shooter now the athenian women were not amazons but they fought a battle no less dangerous they say of us cries medea that we live a life free from danger within doors while men are fighting like heroes with the spear but men are fools rather would i stand three times in the battle line of shields than bear one child a mother had already risked her life in bringing a child to birth is she not far more justified than the father in ending that child's life if such be her will moreover children are the pledges of marriage the securities given for a business arrangement is it right that the party who wilfully breaks the compact should retain possession of the securities such i believe are some of the questions that euripides meant to suggest it is no answer to them to say that it is an unnatural crime for a mother to kill her children for it is equally unnatural and criminal for a father and yet ancient fathers killed their children without compunction and without blame the medea then is realistic and little else the alcestis the first in time of euripides plays is a blend of style and demands a fuller treatment there are no villains in the alcestis and there are no heroes there is one heroic character but her heroism is of so common a type that it usually passes unnoticed the three men admetus pheres and heracles in varying degrees are animated by the strongest of all male motives self-preservation alcestis lacks their sound common sense she is guided by passion by the strongest of all female passions and that which comes nearest to the divine the maternal passion of self-sacrifice she has given life once she is prepared to give it again it is commonly assumed and even verrall tacitly allows this to go unchallenged that alcestis is in love with admetus and admetus is in love with alcestis 
the affection which happily for us may usually be expected to exist between husband and wife is taken for granted in the very different conditions of euripides time now as we have seen this is a cardinal error mutual affection and esteem did not reign in an ordinary athenian household husband and wife were usually indifferent to one another and even this indifference was an improvement upon the ionian relationship when husband and wife were often natural enemies that a wife should give up her life out of love for her husband is a state of things so agreeable to the natural man that it is perhaps not surprising if the language of the play has never been too closely examined alcestis's motive is not love for her husband but love for her children euripides following aeschylus knew that maternal love is a far stronger force than conjugal affection even when the latter exists the mother and the children on them he spends all the resources of his unrivalled pathos the husband is a mark for his bitterest irony it is because alcestis does not wish her children to be left fatherless that she consents to death the position of the widow as indeed is implied in our language by the form of the word is definitely worse than that of the widower the orphan in ancient times was the fatherless child and the position of the chief's son whose father died in his childhood was particularly unenviable it is described in two of the most pathetic passages in greek literature by andromache in the twenty-second book of the iliad and by tecmessa in the most euripidean of all the plays of sophocles the ajax under the old tribal system a chief's power depended very largely on personal ascendancy so that old men like laertes and pheres found it expedient to retire in favour of their grown-up son a small boy like eumelus could not have maintained his father's position and his father's death would probably have meant considerable danger to his life all this in euripides time was a commonplace and needed no emphasis he prefers indeed to deal with the reverse picture the sorrows of the motherless children and especially of the motherless girl for the pathos of the sacrifice is partly this it is for the sake of the boy and his future position in life and not so much for the girl that the mother dies let us now examine the play itself admetus chief of fairy has been told by his medicine man that he is a very bad life that indeed he cannot hope to live much longer three months perhaps six months say at the most but he has been a generous benefactor to the profession and in particular has rendered some quite exceptional services to the archphysician apollo himself accordingly a special provision is made in his case if he can get some one of his own family to transfer to him their vitality the operation may be feasible the problem is to find the man or woman for his family is very small admetus goes to his father and mother but both even his mother refuse for as we shall see admetus is not a very sympathetic character or likely to arouse the spirit of self-sacrifice even in a mother's heart finally he asks his young wife the mother of his two little children and she consents at this point the play opens admetus believes what he is told alcestis believes what she is told the sixth month is ending and she is marked out for death so death appears and the burlesque dialogue between death and the doctor thanatos and apollo forms the prologue where the archphysician who can cure all diseases but one is confronted by that one himself but the prologue and the entrance of the chorus need not detain us the first intimate details about alcestis are given by the servant woman in her long speech to the chorus and it will be noticed that in the picture of the household which she draws for them the central point is the marriage bed twice already has alcestis risked her life upon that bed and now another sacrifice has to be made 
a childless woman might refuse her husband demands her life and she must give it for the sake of the children whom on that bed she has borne it is of her children that alcestis thinks for them she prays she has no petition to make on her husband's behalf in all the narrative indeed the husband scarcely appears the chorus of men notice the omission and inquire of him and this is the answer they get oh yes he is weeping as he holds the woman he loves his bedfellow in both arms he is begging her not to abandon him he wants what he cannot have the chorus then bursts into a lament which is interrupted by the appearance of alcestis and her husband outside the house the following scene is an extreme example of that combination of pathos and irony from which euripides never shrinks the lamentation of alcestis expressed in lyrics of the purest quality is answered at regular intervals by admetus in iambic couplets where style and thought alike are cruelly commonplace then alcestis who has been standing supported by her women sinks to the ground and with one last cry to her children thrice repeated seems to faint away admetus in the name of the children begs her not to forsake him this is worse for me than any death on you we all depend to live or die alcestis makes her final effort and for the first time addresses her husband by name but in the pathetic speech that follows her last words are for her children and it is plain that she is terribly afraid that admetus will marry again and inflict a stepmother upon them admetus himself hesitates to give the promise and it is one of the chorus who answers the dying wife with alcestis disappears the pathos of the play the rest is ironical a realistic criticism of the resurrection story and hardly concerns us but the scene between pheres and admetus where the old father the mother is prudently admitted from the action comes to convey his sympathy is a beautiful illustration of euripides insight into the weakness of the male character such are the pair father and son behold your ordinary sensual man he seems to say dr verrall spends some time and pains in showing that admetus is not a hero and doubtless he is not heroic either to us or to euripides but it does not follow that an athenian audience would share our or the master's private views we are unconsciously influenced by centuries of romantic literature in which the relations of the sexes have been idealized the athenians treated women much as the baser sort still treat animals to us admetus seems almost inconceivably selfish and callous probably many an athenian never realized that his conduct was reprehensible even so today a vegetarian has considerable difficulty in proving to the ordinary man that it is unjustifiable selfishness to take life for the gratification of appetite i have always eaten meat such a one will say i always shall and so did my father animals were created for use the athenian might have used the same language about his wife but in the play itself no one is under any sort of delusion as to admetus the servant-woman the attendant the chorus alcestis herself all know him for what he is a selfish coward very religious certainly he is and very hospitable in other words very full of absurd superstitions and very fond of having strangers in the house to divert him from himself heracles the ravisher and apollo the seducer appreciate him as an excellent boon companion his own household do not share their views they know too well and there is constant reference to this in the play that he is foolish in the euripidean sense of the word the slave of passions which he is unable to control and so we may leave him in his character euripides explodes the fallacy that in all cases and in all circumstances man is the superior animal but the wonder of the alcestis is this 
in spite of the irony and cruel satire in spite of the bitter criticism of the two doctrines the existence of the supernatural and the superiority of man there remain so many other threads of interest realism and romance pathos and humour that a well-disposed reader can shut his eyes to the unpleasant and usually does what is wanted to bring out the full meaning of euripides plays is a double translation one version written in prose by a realist with a taste for irony the other composed by a lyric poet neither version will be satisfactory apart for the spirit of euripides is a compound of the two neither will be final for translations quickly age and euripides is ever young End of chapter eight